The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. The Dog Tag Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered causing offense, distress, or other reaction. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesreeatallstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host, Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. Today in studio, we have Chris Lennington, United States Army. Jim, go ahead and kick us off. Well, welcome, Chris. Um, we're glad to have you here tonight. And, uh, you end up serving a lot of years in the Army, and I you know, obviously, we've been volunteer army for many, many years. And the first question I like to ask people is, why did you choose to enter the service? Uh, it's a pretty simple question. Uh, there was no college fund for me. <laughs> so it was uh, either enter the army or uh, do something that uh, probably wouldn't have turned out so good for me. Okay. And uh, you end up with served 20 years. You were deployed to Kosovo one tour in Iraq and three tours in Afghanistan um, in an, one of the outposts there. Mm-hmm. And I'm always intrigued when I hear people tell me about the outposts because I, uh, now obviously I'm an outsider looking in, but, you know, from what you see in the videos, the way they're portrayed, that's pretty hazardous duty. It is. Um, I think that um, the, the videos, the, most of the movies portray it pretty good uh, for the most part. Uh, it's austere environment. For sure. Um, for, for us, for me, I spent seven months on an outpost um, in the Kunar Valley area. Um, and uh, it, was, it was, you know, MREs a couple times a day. Um, no showers for seven months. We washed ourselves out of an ammo can. Um, it was fun. It was a good time, you know. So 
and and the other part of that 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 always makes me wonder a little bit the the world's greatest army the the best equipped army in seven months without a shower <laughs> washing out of a helmet or an ammo can um that just kind of i have a tough time grasping that but so life was pretty tough for you guys at the outpost yep so um you spent seven months there tell tell us a little bit about you know how that played out over the 20 years were you young when you went over to those how, how when did this come along in your career uh the outpost i was in my early to mid 20s nope i was um late 20s when i went to uh that deployment so i was still fairly immature when it came to um as, as an adult but um at that point, I already served in Kosovo and Iraq. So, um, you know, leading soldiers, young soldiers into a place like that, uh, and I think I said this before, but uh, we, we actually thought that um, me and another squad leader thought that uh, we weren't going to make it out of that place. Uh, and, and quick story is we were in the National Training Center in California probably about six months, seven months before we deployed there. And that's when um, a place called the Ranch House, um, they, they got attacked and about half of them got, uh, got killed in action. Um, and we were going to the same place. Um, so at that point, you know, we think we got all brand new soldiers and it's just you and me looking at the other squad later like, we may not make it out of this place. Um, but, you know, we kept our head on as, as best as we could and um, kept pushing through. And, you know, trained them as best as we possibly could and ended up not losing any soldiers during that. Uh, we had a lot of injuries, but we didn't lose any on the outpost. So how is that? You you were a what, staff sergeant? Mm-hmm. Did you get, yep. Attained that rank. And your, your leaders, you know, the sergeant, the non-coms are the real leaders yeah. in a unit. And, and you had very many young, inexperienced guys in your command. So – the way that it got set up was um, we stood that unit up from the groundwork. So it came, it was 1st Infantry Division, uh, 1st to the 126th Infantry, um, and it got decommissioned after it was in Germany. That unit was in Germany. Um, they went to Iraq. It was a disastrous deployment for them in Iraq, disastrous. Um, while they were redeploying, they stood up the same brigade in uh, Fort Hood, Texas, because uh, they wanted to bring the 1st Infantry Division back home from Germany. Um, so they they stood up that brigade at Fort Hood, um, and they brought all brand-new soldiers into this unit from basic training, from you know AIT. So they were all brand-new. And the leaders, some of the leaders were still, the young leaders were still, were still brand-new. Um, we had some some sergeants, team leaders and some squad leaders that were transitioned from other MOSs and they weren't combat veterans at the time. Um, they knew how to lead soldiers, but you know, they didn't have the experience that um, only a few of us did. Um, and it was a, it, it turned out to be a very good deployment for the most part. We lost some soldiers, but it wasn't as bad as we thought. We hear a lot of the uh, you know, people that we meet with tell us that, you know, you, you just go over there and do your job stay focused, you, you kind of do the practice on the state side, go over, the, hit the ground running, and do your job. How do you keep that uh, focus while you're in a, in a forward base like that, you know, and uh, in the day-to-day monotony and staying focused, 
when when you're real world getting shot at and you have to stay alert and all that stuff, does the training really just kick in and you do do your job, or is there any kind of uh, reservations at all? I think the uh, the biggest thing is you don't want to get shot. <laughs> I think that's the motivation. Um, and I mean, training does kick in. So having repetition in the States and, and that does kick in, but I think the motivation is really you're looking out for each other and you, you don't want to get shot. I mean, you don't want to get blown up and it is, it is monotonous to a point, but it's something different every single day because they're throwing something at you every single day. That's absolutely ridiculous. It could be pop shots from the mountains. It could be a uh, rocket from the mountains. It could be, who knows what it is. You know, we're doing two patrols per day, um, and it's changing up every single day. So, I, you know, the biggest thing, the motivation for me was I don't want to get killed, nor do I want to allow any of my soldiers to get killed. I want them all to go back home, um, and that was really the motivation behind it. Chris, my understanding of some of these outposts is you're in a position, usually down in a valley, very disadvantaged by the terrain. Is, is that how it was at the, the base you were at? Uh, yeah, and most of them are like that. They're they're put in the the valley for a reason, usually to watch a road or construction of something, a school, um, you know, supplies going back and forth between outposts. They put ours to observe a road that was getting built into the Cornegal Valley um, to to watch those construction workers. Unfortunately, it was a terrible place to get put. We were literally at the base of uh, two huge mountain ranges. Uh, and there was a there was a river that ran in between uh, the mountains, um, so yeah, it was it could have been really disastrous. Um, they after we spent seven months there, and we decommissioned the base um, and pulled out. Do you remember having that oh crap moment when you first got to the base when you started to take a look around? <laughs> yeah, it's funny, funny you say that. So <laughs> I uh, I was one of the first leaders into Afghanistan for my unit. So I was, um, I was advanced going in. And, um, when I hit Afghanistan, you know, at that point I've already been deployed twice, but when I hit Afghanistan, it was a whole new suck level. Um, just because we knew we were going into the, the, the belly of the beast at that point, uh, not any hotter than, than Iraq, definitely. But, um, it was a whole different, uh, warfare, you know? Um, and I was one of the first leaders to touch ground at the outpost, relieving the 173rd airborne. And when I got off the Chinook helicopter at the, we had one HLZ. So one helicopter landing zone that we can land a helicopter. And I looked at these, these gentlemen, they looked like they just, they spent almost a year at this one outpost and they were so ready to go home. They were beat to beat to crap, and their clothes were tat, you know, tattered. And I thought, I have a year of this. And it it hit me at that point, like, oh man, this is going to be rough. Um, you know, living in Hesco basket buildings, and and there was no, I mean, other than some wood structures that some engineers built, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. So it, it's a, it was a little bit crazy, and. Uh, and then leaving that place was also crazy, but that's that's a totally different story. So you get off the uh, Chinook to make entry and relief. What's the turnaround time for uh, relief? 
from those guys leaving to you guys getting there? Is it debrief time? Is there any kind of time like that? And also, how do you get resupplied? So uh, turnaround time was I got off the aircraft and they got on the aircraft. So the squad that I was replacing literally got on and said goodbye and peaced out. Um, there was a little bit of transition from their platoon sergeant. We did some patrols with them, um, but that was it. Um, it. What was the second part of the question? And how do you get resupplied in, in a oh. in a forward operating base where no one's you got tattered yeah. clothing? But how are you get you you doing looking for food? Is food you know you said MREs, but I mean, how often do you get more? So they would fly in resupply as we needed it uh, per helicopter. That was the only way to get in. Um, for American vehicle. Uh, we did have an American convoy try to come in on the road one time and they hit an ID and then they stopped uh, driving on the road. So the only means communication with, or um, transportation was either by helicopter or taking a raft down the river. Um, but that wasn't a good idea. So um, the only way to get there was by Black Hawk. Um, Chinook is very, it's hard. It was hard to land a Chinook on that, HLZ because it was very small. So usually it was by Blackhawk. Um, and, you know, you're only flying six to nine personnel at that time. Uh, but they would fly out ammo and MREs. Um, daily, we had an Afghan man that would drive his vehicle up the road and bring us hot chow from the base outside the valley. They would make it, they had cooks down there and they would make some food. And that, that Afghan driver would get paid $10, and he would – it's big money over there. Um, and they, he would drive that vehicle up the road and drop off food. Guy was a wonderful guy, but at first we thought, well, we're going to get poisoned. Like, that's the first thing that's going to happen. Um, quick story about that. In the middle of our deployment, um, the guy pulled up to get our bring our dinner chow to us, uh, the one meal, the hot meal that we had, and uh, he got out of the vehicle and he was bloody. Uh, he got shot about halfway through. They shot the vehicle up. Um, we pulled him in, and we lifted him off, and he got medical care. But the guy still brought our hot chow. So, yeah, it was pretty pretty good. So I'm thinking, you know, you're in this deplorable situation there. You're a staff sergeant. You're you're a leader, and and you pretty much got green troops with you. I mean, that's, that's a tough situation as a leader. Um, and there's no escaping it. You can't say, I'm going to go into town this week and, and kind of blow off some steam. So that sounds like a whole lot of added stress on you. Uh, it is. Um, you know, as a leader, you've really got to learn to adapt quickly, um, especially in a place like that. Um, you got to really keep soldiers motivated and continuously try to find new ways to keep their minds off of what's going around around them. Um, you know, when you get woke up in the middle of the night by gunfire and you got to quickly put on your kit, um, it's tough. Um, and I think just understanding each one of your, your soldiers' uh, mental capacity and where they, where they are at that point, it's just having one-on-one conversations with these these kids, um, and understanding like what their trigger points are, um, you know what what their needs are, and try and meet them as best as possible in an austere you know environment. Um, 
there there was a lot of conflict in between each other, just like if you're living in the same house with your wife for, you know, seven months and you don't leave, um, there's going to be an argument. It's the same, it's the same thing. So it's just a matter of keeping them engaged. And we had, at the time we had computers, so we were able to play some video games and they movies and stuff like that. Um, power was a problem. We only had two generators. Um, and, uh, when one went down, that was a problem, you know? So what did you find was the most difficult part of, um, the patrol part. I mean, was it the actual going on patrol? Was it the rotation? Would everybody go on patrol or would some people stay back? I mean, how did that work? What was the, give us some details around that if you can. So I'll start off with when we first deployed, we came out there with three squads. Um, let me back up. No, four squads. We came out there with three light squads and then one heavy weapon squad. Um, we lost a squad leader um, right at the beginning of the deployment. Uh, it wasn't due to enemy fire or anything. Um, so then we merged into two squads um, and one weapon squad. Um, about one month into deployment, my weapon squad leader, uh, we lived in the same hut. It was just a wooden hut. We started getting hit in the morning uh, by PKM um, and AK-47 fire he got out of his cot tried to put his kit on and he got shot through his arm while in the same room um lost the feeling in his arm everything we had to lift him out so at that point we were down to only two squads uh, me and a guy named uh, staff sergeant kirk um so the rotation was i would go out and then he would go out um at random different time you know random times um the biggest thing on the on patrols at that area was it's the unknown right you don't know when you're going to get hit first of all um, but in that area they never hit us outside the wire because they knew that we would bring the heat upon them and that was the biggest thing because they in that area what we got mostly was they were transporting their goods their ammo between locations of where they're at so we were getting a lot of that traffic in that area um, so it wasn't a lot of heavy um, Taliban movement up in the mountains there were but they would they would cross we wouldn't be able to see them but if they most most of them that were around that area knew if we went out we had helicopter support we had apache support we had kiowa support we had a10s we had a lot of things that to our disposal because they knew in that area so anytime that we would enter the wire that's when they hit us because we were at the weakest so when we leave the wire we're very kitted up. We're ready to go, right? And we have support. Well, as soon as we enter that wire, that's the weakest point at that time because now we're refitting. Or we're tired. We just walked, you know, 12 hours. Um, the squad that's on guard, because there would be a squad on guard on the, on the base and then a squad off the base doing the patrol. Both would be tired because one would be up for a long time doing guard. The other would be off patrol. And that's when they would hit us with rockets and PKM fire. Um, so anytime we'd enter the base, we'd have to be ready for that that attack. Um, and it was a weird, weird, you know, environment. So that was Afghanistan. Uh, and I kind of think you said something to the effect it was very different than being in Iraq. Can you kind of talk about the differences between the two deployments? Uh, weather. 
<laughs> uh, Iraq was extremely hot. Um, when I entered Iraq, it was the kind of the beginning of uh, Iraq. So we got, um, I wasn't, we were the invading force, but we got pushed back a little bit of time. Our time got pushed back because our boats and our vehicles couldn't enter through Turkey, and then they had to turn around and go through Kuwait. So we kind of had a delayed entry into Iraq. But um, Iraq was, again, at the beginning of the war, so it was a little bit of the wild, wild west. There wasn't many rules. Um, it was get the job done. Um, we worked alongside our company, did a lot of things with um, uh, spies um, in the area, um, DIA agents that were um, placed there before the war. Um, and we ran our own missions. Um, the company commander called the shots and, um, we, we did a lot of things. Um, Afghanistan was a little bit different. Um, you're fighting a war in the mountains. You're going up, up the mountains, you're going down the mountains. The enemy is different. Um, you, you're not fighting house to house. Um, you're not driving far distance. Um, a lot of times you're in a stagnant location in Afghanistan. Um, you know, you're guarding a base, you're you're flying out to a because the, the landmass is bigger. So you have to get out there by helicopter to, to get to any location and then you're walking and then you get picked up by helicopter most of the time. So the fight's different because the people are different. In Iraq, the the enemy or the people are driven by money and greed. Um, Afghanistan, they just didn't want us to be there. They want us to leave them alone. They wanted to farm their their land and, and be over with it. And most people didn't care that uh, that Al-Qaeda was there or any terrorist organization. They didn't care. Um, they were, they're so far behind in the world that it, nothing matters to them. They don't care who's the, the, the president. They don't care who's in their, you know, what's, you know, whatever's going on in, in the, uh, the government, they don't care. Um, but Iraqis they're a little bit different. There is a little bit of care there, but their their motiv- their motivation is different. Um, so that's a little bit uh, how it differs um, in that fight. What year was that you were in Iraq? Two thousand and four is when I enter- entered Iraq. If you had any relationship building exercises with the with the uh, people in the countries there, what did that look like? Afghanistan, we ran a lot of uh, what's called medcap, so we would do a lot of medical things with the community. Um, they didn't get a lot of medicine out there, um, so we'd fly in or walk in or drive in, and we would do a, um, a whole medical, you know, evaluation on the population. And they really liked that because they didn't get any medicine. You know, st- stomach problems are a huge thing when you have no soap and water. Um, all those those bugs and everything, and they're they're living in their stomach. And uh, they always have stomach problems. So um, that was a huge thing. Um, in Iraq, uh, similar, but they were, like I said, they were driven by money. Um, we would help build things. Um, we would um, we would literally give people money to get information. Um, so that kind of differs, you know, with that. You, um, you spent, and, and I'm, I guess I'm talking about both countries, but... We often hear a lot of people saying, why were we over there? And, and of course, the, the way we exited the country. But 
very often we hear some of the soldiers come back saying they did help in many, many ways. It was very small victories maybe, but could you see where you help the people from time to time? Um, this subject is um, a little bit weird because if we think in history, um, World War II, World War One, Vietnam, the Korean War, we're fighting a um, population, right? We're fighting a country. Uh, we know the enemy. We know the friendly um, elements. Um, and we're fighting for for the right to live, right? And that's for the whole world. Um, and I don't know what year this changed, warfare. But um, at some point, warfare changed. And we no longer are going to fight a country. It's not going to happen. Um, you know, Russia, China, I don't see that ever being a thing. Um, so an I, an idea, an ideology has uh, taken over warfare now, right? Uh, and it's only going to get worse. So when it comes to soldiers saying, well, you know, why was I over there? Did we do it for a good cause? Um, you know, we entered Iraq, we fought Iraq, but that really wasn't a war, right? I mean, uh, we lost people during the Iraq, the first and you know first Iraq War, obviously, um, but it was a quick it was a quick war. It wasn't a long drawn out thing. Um, and then when when we entered Iraq, again, you know, it, it's it's the I think it was the start of a um, an idea, you know, the the guerrilla warfare, the kind of we were chasing people that weren't there, you know, um, and then Afghanistan's even worse, right? We're we're, we're chasing an idea uh, that these people have a religion. Um, so, do I think we made a difference? Uh, yeah, we made a difference, obviously, in in some people's lives. Um, there were some great Afghan Afghan uh, soldiers, people. Same thing with Iraq, um, and we were there. One because we were told to be there, obviously, um, but that's the that was the mission of the world at the time, you know. Um, and again, the next war is going to be fought totally different, um, electronic warfare or whatever it's going to be. Um, it's not going to be the same as World War II, you know. If that happens, we are in a world of hurt, and the whole world is going to have a problem. One of the things that we hear a lot about and. And obviously, I'm not in a position to judge the rates of PTSD with with soldiers from going back many, many wars. One of the things that I think compounds the stress is we never really quite knew who friend and foe was over in those countries. And um, you had to have your guard up 24 hours a day, which is also a stressor. Um, Anytime you're working with local nationals, um, you know, in a, an environment like that, you you got to keep your guard up. Um, like I said, it's a little bit different than World War Two, um, or World War One. You're in the trenches. You kind of knew the enemy; they were going to come after you. You were going to go ambush or whatever. You know, attack, um, assault the enemy. There's not as much of that, so you got to watch out. Um, you know, all around you, and I think that created a whole new level of awareness for the current uh, veterans now. Um, and, and veterans, a lot of times, newer veterans talk about how they enter a room and they do a 360 and they're always monitoring everything around them. Um, 
I catch myself doing it all the time. Veterans, you know, do it all the time, right? They enter a room, and my girlfriend knows when we enter a restaurant, I, I need to sit where I can see the door because you never know what's going to enter that door. And I think it's good um, to a point, um, but the other piece to this when it comes to PTSD, some soldiers, airmen, you know, military members, veterans, um, they don't handle it well, and that's okay. Uh, everybody handles situations differently. Um, I handle it differently than, you know, friends of mine that, that you know, killed themselves. Um, and it's just a matter of if you caught it quick and you were able to adjust and adapt. Um, some people are not. And the timing of going from the battlefield back to friendly, you know, uh, land, wherever that may be, United States or somewhere in between, is so much quicker now. Before, you'd have to go on a boat all the way home, have some decompression time, and now literally you are on the battlefield and then at home with no time to process what's happening. Can you speak a little bit to that or how that may impact people? I think um, there's two different uh, groups to look at. Um, One is the normal conventional forces. Uh, We had a little bit more time to decompress, not as much as we needed. Um, The, you know, we may have between your last foot patrol in that land to when you're standing on the ground of the United States, maybe 15 to 30 days, depending on how many flights get pushed back and you're sitting in Kuwait and you're doing all this stuff. Um, And you're not in a country where it's, cool you're in kuwait where it sucks Um, but there's a little bit more of that transition time the other piece is special operations soldiers where they're doing missions for three or three to four months and literally two days later they're standing in their house Um, and i think that's definitely something to to look at right Uh, the transition obviously like you said it's it's different from previous battles wars um, but you, you have, you have to, you have to figure out, uh, how to adjust on the fly. You have to, you kind of have to do the whole mental thing. And, um, some people just can't do it, right? They just can't understand how they can be in battle, you know, one day and then 16, 17 days later, they're, they're at home. Um, so there, that transition is hard. Um, and I don't think the government or the VA or anybody fully understands that, um, and there's not much you can do. There really isn't um, because you want to get home and you want to get those soldiers home. Um, luckily, they kind of started doing things. As soon as you touch ground, you have a reintegration period to where, you one, you can't drive your car. They t- The commanders say you can't drive your car for, you know, five days. Um, you may get vacation the first month you're back. Um, so there's things they try to introduce to the population, the military population, to kind of lessen that time, but it's still a learning curve. So you're kind of saying very much like military tactic have changed since the Civil War, rifled better equipment and everything else, but you're kind of saying in a way that the way we bring our troops home and adjust them back to civilian life, it's probably just as slow, it's slow to change. Yes. And, uh, you know, obviously – Part of it is an understanding of what's going on. You guys were immersed in situations that 
frankly, we've never seen. You know, the door kickers, uh, the suburban kind of combat that you experience in Iraq, you know, we were on their home field, so that had to have been an adjustment period. And uh, I've heard veterans also talk about adjusting to being around children is even very difficult yes. after their time in Iraq. So, you know, hopefully the government and, and the armed forces is doing a better job of transitioning to those guys uh, and gals that come back now. I think veterans need to understand that the whole process, and it's hard for a young soldier to understand, young soldier to understand this, but you have to take a little bit of responsibility upon yourself. It sucks, right? Um, when you exit the military, when you get back overseas, you have to take the responsibility upon yourself and not look upon the military or the VA to fix it. Because I can tell you right now, if you rely on the government to fix anything, you're going to be waiting a long time, and then you're going to be sitting in your grave, and it's still not fixed. So when it comes to a soldier or a veteran relying on someone else to help you adjust, you've got to adjust yourself. Now, there's there's programs out there that nonprofits are trying to help, you know, that work with veterans and, and do all this stuff, and that's where you know, you need to look, right? Um, so in my opinion, times are slow to change. Um, reintegration is always going to be a problem because the warfare changes every single time, and then the government has to adjust, and it's almost impossible. Um, Good point. So it's like turning the ship. in the. It's like turning the Titanic once it already hits the iceberg. Yeah. You, you can't. So you kind of got to look at it as, being responsible for yourself and trying to figure out the best way. Now it's not always going to, it's not perfect. Um, but you've got to search for that, that uh, meaning yourself outside the, the government. One of the, uh, the other points is we seem to gather some of the information we seem to, we begin to understand is a lot of people come back struggling with PTSD, but it's not always immediate. There's a long delay before these stressors actually start kicking in. Um, do you have any? Did you have any personal experience of how maybe you came back and felt like uh, there were stressors there in your life long after you were back? Do you have any personal experience with that? I do, um, and I 100% agree. Unfortunately. PTSD doesn't really go away. Now, I think they've developed this whole, um, there's no cure, but there is a, um, I can't remember the name of the, ter the term they've used, but um, you can improve from it. You know, um, There's always going to be stressors in your life that cause something to come back. Um, I got divorced in, um, my, my divorce was final in 2001. Um, and I lost my job that Christmas previous, um, going through a troubling time with my, my ex-wife. Um, and, uh, I fought to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. I lost my job. Um, and I had nothing, nothing at all. You know, my ex-wife was trying to take everything from me and it was a terrible time for me. Um, I, I contemplated suicide 
and it was in my mind, and it, it came to the point where I extended for help. I reached out to, to the Wounded Warrior Program and uh, another therapist, and I tried to do it. Unfortunately, um, he, um, with COVID and everything else, everything was very limited on what you can do um, in person. So I realized at one point when I pulled my handgun out, and I, I sat there and I said, this is the only way, and I realized real quickly this is not the only way. And I thought of my kids. Um, but PTSD doesn't just go away, um, and that goes for anybody that's in a traumatic experience. It could be a military member. It could be somebody to an accident. Everybody, everybody reacts to a situation differently. And I think you have to figure out a way to refocus yourself um, and find your purpose. And I always tell people this, you know, especially in the military, if you don't know your purpose, if you can't wake up in the morning every single day and be happy for what you're about to do, it, does, it doesn't matter what it is. If you can't wake up and put a smile on your face and know that I'm going to go out and kick some butt today, you're going to have an issue. Because it's going to come back, and it's going to come back and bite you. Well, it's a great point. The, um, you know, one of the things that we sometimes maybe skews our perspective here, too, is most of the time we're talking with more modern veterans that have been out a while. I'd like to think that we're making headway with the, the VA and support to help the veterans, the, the newer, more recent combat veterans, do you know any personally? Do you know if the support mechanisms are improving? Um, the VA is always improving. Um, I mean, they're always trying to put things in to, to help and support. Um, there's, you know, um, there's always things that uh, they, they try and implement to, to help veterans when it comes to, you know, depression or PTSD or TBI or whatever it is. Um, I haven't seen any recent soldiers that, um, you know, that it's helped, but we also are for the most part out of these large wars too. So the people are not coming back like they used to in waves. So I think it's just a matter of, um, for veterans, it's banding together. It's creating these organizations and just not nonprofits or whatever, but, banding together as groups because there is nobody that understands a veteran better than a veteran. And if you have, and that's, I always want to promote these, these organizations, the, the American Legion, these uh, VFW, the, you know, anything that um, that's out there for the new generation to be a part of because um, the structure is already there. And, all we have to do is step in and help support those, and we get together and we help each other, and we're stronger together. Um, and that's that's huge. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, in some previous conversations we've had, we've had with some veterans, we've learned there's a decline in kind of membership for VFWs and, and things of that nature. Do you have any kind of thoughts of why there has been a decline with the newer generation and how we can get them reengaged to keep this 
camaraderie going and maybe some support group going? How, how do we re-engage them to be involved in something like that or that specifically? When it comes to the VFW or American Legion, it's an old structure, right? It's an old platform. Um, and I had this discussion just recently um, at one of my um, networking meetings that I went to. Um, it's We have to change, unfortunately. The American Legion and VFW are not going to fully change, right? They're what they are, and they're great organizations. They do so much for the veterans. Um, but the older generation – took this and developed this into something that they lived with and they, what they did. We have to take it and make it our own. So we have to take the American Legion and change how some of it's done and how what it looks like, right? Used to be there's still, there's still ones that you can go and smoke in and you can do this stuff. Well, that's not how the world is now, right? So we have to start interjecting, injecting these young Americans, these veterans into these organizations, but they're going to have to change to be around what we are now. You know, we don't want smoke in the buildings, right? We want it to look like it's the 2000s, right? So I think, you know, taking these organizations and injecting some of these younger Americans in here and these younger veterans and understanding that we're going to have to take over and we're going to have to change it a little bit. Um, but they look at it as this old platform, this old thing, and they don't want to do it. It's clunky. It's weird. I think we just need to change it. Um, and we can do it, but, you know, it just takes a lot of us to, to do the work. There's um, – and we I understand what you're saying about the American Legion and, and the VFWs. It's, uh, we, we've got a lot of friends at those two organizations, but it's um, – you know, I'm not sure that – we see a whole lot of the younger veterans joining those groups. Um, when you look at the membership, it certainly looks like an older group. One of the things that we see here at the museum that I kind of think is a little frustrating is today there are more great organizations out there trying to help veterans, but nothing is networked and everybody's just kind of trying to do their thing out there. And many of our veterans report that, they're not aware of the resources out there to help them. And it seems like there's no good, strong network or book that you can open and say, I need this, call this guy kind of a thing. So it's funny you say that. Um, we just started a nonprofit, Combined Veteran Solutions, and the whole idea behind this nonprofit is to combine the networking uh, groups in St. Louis, St. Charles, Jefferson County, and hopefully, and, and it's not just that, it's help small business owners um, promote their business, but the idea behind this is we do need to come together as veterans. When a veteran comes to, to St. Louis, if he moves to St. Louis or he comes back or gets out of the military, we're, we are broken, and I can't fix the nation. I can only fix, you know, my community. Um and we have to come together and work together to fix the problems. We can't have outside organizations fixing our own problems. It's not going to work. So when veterans come back and veterans talk to me and they say, well, you know, where do I go? One, very frustrating is they, one, they don't call. Um, 
we, me and, and many other uh, networking people try and get them to the right location and where they need to be and give them all the assets they possibly need, but they don't want it. Um, or, you know, maybe they think they know exactly where to go. So I think, um, to your point, um, there is a start, there is a movement of that, trying to help that and bring it all together. How would somebody get a hold of a group like you? Uh, we have a Facebook page now, Combined Veteran Solutions. Um, we have a website, same thing. Um, they can contact, they can go on the Facebook and message us. Um, we're, we're growing a little bit. We meet at the uh, Winsville American Legion the first and third Thursday of, um, of every month. Um, we are growing. Um, we will be soon meeting with two of the larger networking uh, presidents um, in the area. We're going to try and mold together to where we can promote each other and, and kind of get the word out. Um, so that's, that's the easiest way to, to contact us. Um, so one of my last questions is, Chris, you served 20 years. You know, we often hear veterans tell us how it felt that first day to not get up and put the uniform on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's funny that you actually say that now because uh, I was thinking about, I was talking to my girlfriend the other day. I have two products that I bought the day that I left Fort Campbell when I retired. One is, I don't wear it, it just it's the old retired veteran hat, right? You see all these older retired veterans wearing, I'm not going to wear it. You know, I don't promote my, I don't, I think it's, I mean, it's an older generation thing, but then I don't go around promoting my veteran status either, but it's just me. Um, the other thing is a tailgate when I, I had a F two fifty before I had my vehicle now, and I had this retired, um, plate that goes on the back of my vehicle. And I bought those two things. I was the happiest man alive because I thought the world was opened up to me at that point. Um, and I drove off that base and it was, it was, uh, an eye opener to me. Um, shortly after that, I realized, Oh crap, what am I going to do? Um, but it was, it was a good moment because after 20 years of doing anything, you're like, okay, I'm tired. You know, I'm worn out. Um, so for me, I was ready for it. I was ready for the transition. Um, some people aren't. Um, and for me, it was a, was a good experience. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask one last question of Chris. And this came up in a previous podcast or a interview we did with him. You were stationed at Fort Knox for a mm -hmm. while. Is there gold in there? <laughs> uh, you know, there's something in there. Uh, and I, I told you the story. We were golfing, uh, and we decided to hit a golf ball across the fence. Um, before you can even blink an eye, there was security on us um, quicker than I've ever seen in my life. But there's, there's about seven layers of security between the golf course and Fort Knox. They have more security at that place than all of the rest of Fort Knox. It's crazy. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. I would imagine there's something there. There's got to be. With that much security, there's got to be something. I, I would it imagine. may not be gold, but it might be worth yeah, as much right? as gold. Exactly. Well, Chris, we really appreciate you coming to uh, spend time with us today in our uh, podcast. Is there anything else that you want to leave our audience with before we sign off? Um. I think, you know, for the younger generation that's out there, um, try and get involved with something. 
you don't have to spend all your days doing something for the veteran community. But um, as a veteran, um, we need to band together. We need to fix our own problems. Um, if you're having an issue, reach out to someone because there's people that are just, you know, biting at the the, the ankles to help. Um, and people like, you know, you guys that do this is amazing, right? This is, I mean, this is truly amazing. And for us veterans that, um, you know, that are out there struggling, um, this only helps. It really does. And hopefully this grows. And I, I would just say that um, just sticking together, you know, and um, come out and do the podcast. Absolutely. Well, Chris, thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you for your service and your sacrifice to this country and to your fellow Americans. And uh, we are going to go ahead and sign off from the Dog Tag Podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate.